0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Colossians 2, verses 8 and 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh. the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, again, so good to be with you. This is now our third week in a series that we're calling The Cross, where we are looking more in depth at what happened, what it meant that Jesus died on the cross, something that we often know is associated with Christianity. If you grew up in the church, maybe if you're a little kid in the church, you ask, what did Jesus do for you? They might say, he died for my sins, and that would be 100% correct. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And we were looking more in depth at the cross because when you look at what the scriptures say about the cross, it's actually beautifully complicated. There's a lot of beautiful things going on. And it's an ugly event itself, but there's a lot of amazing things that, uh, that it reveals, that it shows, that it does. And just to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit for a second. I'll use a little bit of jargon uh, for just a moment because I don't really do this very often. But what we're really doing over these few weeks leading up to Easter is we are studying what's called the atonement. The atonement. That is a theological term that refers to what happened when Jesus died. And there have been different, what we might call theories or approaches. To the atonement throughout history, and all of them are highlighting some kind of thing in scripture that shows us what happened when Jesus died. So, last week, we looked at the cross saves sinners. And what we were actually doing, and remember, I'm just pulling the curtain back for just a second, is that we were actually looking at two different approaches to the atonement. One was called the ransom theory, one is called Penal substitutionary atonement. This is the last time I'm going to say that word, okay? But this is, uh, these are two approaches that the church has looked at the scriptures and they said, this is what the cross did. And I kind of combined them together last week, meaning this, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for sin. That's ransom. He paid back what we owed to God. But also, he stood in our place. He removed our guilt, our shame. He was our substitute. He was the spotless lamb. That substitutionary atonement, which is unpopular to talk about these days, means that Christ stood in our place before the wrath of God and he absorbed it. And that is what the scriptures teach. We saw last week those three words. Propitiation, that means to pay for the wrath of God. The ransom, to to buy back. Or redemption to buy back and also justification to be made right legally before him. So, just in the pulling back the curtain for a second, this is what we have been talking about. What did the cross do? Well, it accomplished our ransom, and Christ was our substitute today. If we think about the, the cross being this diamond, this beautiful thing that we're studying in the Scripture, we're turning the diamond a little slightly to look at it in a slightly different light, which turns out to be a, a light that the Scripture talks about everywhere as well, which is this, what's called the Christus victor theory of the atonement. Christus victor means Christ the victor, what the cross did was not only pay for our sins, not only clear us of guilt and debt, the cross also defeats evil. It shows the victory that Christ has over the world, the flesh and the devil, everyone who stands against God. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Christ the Victor, the cross defeats evil. Let's ask for God's help before we begin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have brought us to the winning side. You have defeated everything that stands against you. And you have done so in a way that brings us along into that victory. I pray that as we look at the cross this morning and what it does to defeat every wrong thing. I pray that we would be filled with wonder, with joy, with praise, that we would exalt the name of Christ, that we would cherish the cross, which was on our behalf. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to imagine that we're at a sporting event of some kind. You could think football if that's your thing. Maybe we should go with basketball, right? Because tis the season. It is March right now, and it's madness out there. And I'm sorry if this is going to be like salt in the wound uh, if your team has already lost. But let's imagine we're at a sporting event, and it's a total blowout. Uh, It is, there's one team that is totally dominating the other team. Some of you know this feeling very well. Uh, You've been there, right? So, You're being dominated, it's near the end. Now I want you to think about the crowd at the end of a totally dominated game. The crowd falls into three different groups, how they're reacting to what's happening. The first group is this. There's the losing side, fans, who are loyal. They are staying to the bitter end, even though they know that the game is over. But you can look at them and you can see their eyes are downcast. Their heads are in their hands. They're not making eye contact with one another. This is a defeated group, but they are loyal and they're staying to the bitter end. The second group of fans would be those who are part of the losing team as well, but they're now exiting the building. Even though the game is not over, they're leaving. You can imagine a reporter coming up to them and saying, Why are you leaving right now? And what they would say is inevitably something like this The game is over. There's no need to watch anymore. There's no victory possible. So they're leaving. And then, of course, there's group number three, which is the winning team's fans who also know that the game is over but somehow they're not leaving. They're staying to the end as well for a different reason than the first group. They're staying even knowing that the game is over, but they look very different than the first group. They're dancing, they're high-fiving, they're smiling because it's a privilege to watch the victory play out. It's a privilege to watch the victory play out. It's satisfying to see that clock go down and to know that the victory is sure. Now what I think many people, maybe many of us included, whether consciously or unconsciously, we believe that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of fans in group number one and number two. That we believe that what's really happening right now is that we're losing some kind of battle out there. It's the church versus the world. And and maybe this is true, by the way, in America. It could have more truth in certain places than other places. But we can kind of believe that the church is losing, or that Christianity is losing. And some of us are number one, fans, and some of us are number two fans. Some of us, you know, those of us who would come to church on a Sunday morning, we're the loyal fans. We've got our heads down. We're going to be here to the bitter end, no matter what. And then other people are exiting the building, and they're saying, this is over. And we can get a sense of defeat, and we live defeated. And I mean this on a broad scale, and a personal scale, On a broad scale We can kind of think about this way. The culture is, is going downhill. The church is weak. But on an individual scale, we may be thinking, I wrestle with sin. I have extreme sorrow and hardship in my life. And there are days, for some of us, many days where we just feel defeated. And we ask questions like, why am I doing this? What's the end of this game? And even knowing something like heaven existing or that you know that God's going to win in the end can be a cheap kind of comfort to those who feel defeated because of how badly it feels both out there and in here. Well, the Scriptures actually tell us that despite what you may feel or what may be true in one given locale of the world... The Bible says that Christians are in group number three, not number one and number two. Meaning we are the ones with a secure victory. And actually, if we changed our mentality somewhat, we're gonna talk about this. That doesn't mean that we leave sorrow behind or we leave acknowledging sin behind. But but it does mean that we get the privilege of watching the victory that's already been secured. And how that victory was secured is through the cross. Jesus Christ the victor. Look at verse 14 with me. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, that last word in, in him could actually be translated, probably, I think, should be translated in it. It could be him or it there. Either one would work. But when it, say, it's, when it says it, in it, it's referring back to the cross. The cro- he nailed it, sin, to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. He is the victor. The cross gives us certainty that there has been and will be victory over every wrong thing. The cross gives us a certain certainty that there has been and there will be victory over every wrong thing. I'm talking about the wrong things out there, and I'm talking about the wrong things in here. Both, Christ triumphed over in the cross. Every wrong thing, every enemy, every opposition. The old Dutch way to talk about these enemies of God is the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I think they get from Colossians 2, the way that it's laid out here, and which we will look at together. All these enemies have been defeated. Number one, the world, the world. Verse eight, look with me together. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, in scripture, the world is, It's kind of a neutral concept, meaning it can be good or it can be negative. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the world, they're talking about God's creation, his good world. More often, though, the word world is negative and refers to the system that has set itself against God. And Paul says that this world is trying to kidnap your faith. That's what he says in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Like an enemy taking captive someone, kidnapping, taking it away, taking away the truth. And he says that it will happen through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, the word philosophy there, I mean, it's just also can be a neutral thing. Philosophy is not a bad thing in and of itself. The word just means love, philos. Wisdom. So philosophy is not a bad thing, but this is the kind of philosophy that leads to emptiness. Philosophy and empty deceit. And he says when this happens, there's kind of two levels that are going on here. According, he says, to human tradition, and according to the elemental spirits of the world. According to human tradition, that is to say what humans have come up and said, this is the best way to live. This is what's true. And when that's set in opposition to God, when somebody says, this is the way that you live, and then the scriptures say, this is not the way you should live. This is a human tradition to say, I'm going to take you captive. I'm going to say you should live this way. But actually, there's a second thing that's going on here. It's not just according to human tradition. It's according to the elemental spirits of the world what does this mean the the language there is the language of astrology from Paul's day talking about the ancient spirits of the world and so this would include you could think about it this way much of what we would lump into the category of spiritual but not religious kind of things spiritualities based on the heavens spiritualities based on the rocks or crystals or energies of the earth These are the things that Paul had in his day as well. And he says, I don't want you to be taken captive. You notice that that military language? This is a battle. But he says, you don't have to be taken captive. You can be victorious. Obviously, when he says, see to it that you not be taken captive, he believes that there's the possibility of defeat of this, how do we fight it? Two things. First, by feeding on the sufficiency of Christ. See, that's where he goes next in verse 9. For, or because in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head, the rule. Of, a rule, of all rule and authority. Paul says, don't be taken captive because Christ is sufficient. You don't need to add in these other things. You don't need the world to fill in the gaps so that you can have a whole spirituality. It's all found in Jesus Christ. The fullness of God dwells in him bodily. It's all done. And you, he says, have been filled in him. If you're in Christ, then you know the sufficiency of Christ. And that defeats being taken captive by these other things because you can say, I'm good. I don't need those things. So we fight by feeding on the sufficiency of Christ and also by fighting with our own thinking. That's why Paul says here, don't let it take you captive. He mentions this language elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 which says for the weapons of our warfare okay there's that battle language again are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive To obey Christ. Do you see how he's thinking here? We have these weapons of warfare where we take hold of our thoughts and turn them towards Christ. We are not taken captive by the elemental spirits of the world or the traditions of men. We take captive those things and bring them into subservience to Christ. We're on the offensive with our thinking, in other words. And he says, what that does, we don't talk about this very often, it destroys strongholds. We actually move, advance the kingdom of God in the world by by not agreeing with the world. We aren't taken captive. We take captive. We destroy strongholds with our faith. Here's how John says it, the Apostle John in 1 John 5, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith overcomes the world. There's victory there. The faith that we have in Jesus Christ overcomes the world. The world the flesh. Look with me at these few verses, starting in verse 11. The flesh is the second enemy. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, that's a lot of information there about circumcision and uncircumcision. But... What Paul is talking about here is the flesh. He uses that word a couple of times there, the flesh. And some of us are defeated. We feel defeated. We feel like we're in group number one or group number two. We have our heads down. Not because so much of what's happening out there in the world, but because of what's happening in here. Our own flesh defeats us. It makes us feel like we're far from God. makes us feel like we're wretched before him. And Paul talks about this like this is something that was true that we were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. There's a lot going on here. Look at verse 13 with me though. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the the gross image here is that you had you were dead flesh. You had not yet been cut by God. In other words, this takes this language of circumcision takes us back to the old covenant, Genesis fifteen, Genesis seventeen. Abraham cut a covenant with God. When we say when it says in scripture, God made a covenant with Abraham. The word there is actually he cut a covenant, and it goes back to the to the first story where Abraham had this interaction with God, and he was put to sleep, and he had this vision of God dividing animals the the animals were split in two they were cut in half and and God walked through the flaming pot that is the representation of God passes through these animals this death to show Abraham I'm going to keep my covenant or let me be like these animals who have been divided. That's, that's the whole, it's gross, I know, but that's the idea behind a covenant. Covenants are cut, and then what God told Abraham to do is to cut himself, to give a mark on his body that you have been cut into God's promises, that is circumcision. This mark marked Abraham. His son, Isaac, and everyone afterwards and anyone who would want to come into the covenant of God, into the family of God, must have been circumcised. If you wanted to be part of Israel, you needed to be circumcised. Now it makes more sense what Paul is saying here in verse 11 and 12, where he says, look, you have been circumcised. Verse 11 In him also you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. What Paul's saying is this. You now have been been circumcised. If you are in Christ, you have been circumcised. But it's a circumcision without hands. What does he mean by that? Well, he explains it then. He says, because you were buried with him in baptism. The baptism is the circumcision without hands. We no longer circumcise. The scriptures tell us because circumcision has to do with blood and Christ has already shed his blood for us. Circumcision has to do with the marks of Israel and Israel has become the church. Circumcision has only applied to boys and now there is neither male nor female in Christ. We are all in Christ. We're all marked by Christ. This circumcision without hands is baptism. What is baptism? With a demonstration that we are buried in Christ and then raised to newness of life through the cross. This is why we associate baptism and circumcision. Passages like this. When it comes to us, what well, we how we baptize infants. So it's not the topic of today, but it relates because we say, look, this is the the New Testament sign of the covenant. We're already buried in baptism by the marking of God, which we don't need circumcision anymore, which was applied both to those who believed and to their children. But Paul's main point here is to show us this you no longer have this dead flesh. You have been marked by baptism. Your body, your dead body, this is the graphic language he uses, the deadness of your flesh has been nailed to the cross. It's dead. The dead things are dead. It no longer clings to you. It's already died. And so there is victory, not just over the world and the elemental spirits of the world, the things that want to take us captive, but there's victory over the flesh, over us when we've walked away from God. And just to speak to those of you who are struggling with sin right now and you are weighed down by it, you feel defeated and you want to be free and you want to have a righteous life, but you feel like every time you get a little bit of traction, then you lose your progress, and it feels like this terrible cycle. And your thinking may, may sound something like this If I'm defeated enough, if I'm sad enough, if I make myself worthless enough, perhaps God will look at me and He will say, Good at least she knows how bad she is. At least he knows how worthless of a worm he is. And we think, maybe, if, I'm, if I do that enough, I'll feel badly enough for sin that I won't sin anymore. This won't work. Why? Because what you're trying to do is to pay for your sins through your own sadness, through your own defeat. You are trying to atone by feeling badly. The strategy will only lead you down. It will not give you any sense of victory. We need a new strategy. What is the strategy? Wash your face, stand up straight, and put all of your attention on the victory of Christ. All of your attention on Him. The problem sometimes when we focus on our flesh is that we, we keep our heads down and we look only at ourselves and, and we don't have any hope there. That's why we said, we did it earlier. We confess our sins and we hear God's assurance of his grace, assurance of pardon. There's a little phrase that we use right before we do the assurance of pardon. Maybe you've remember it. Maybe it's just become part of the background. But we say, lift up your heads and hear the good news of the gospel, or lift up your heads and hear this assurance of God's grace. It's worth saying, enough of that. <laughs> of course, it's important to acknowledge your sin. The Bible says that we need to have a godly sorrow over sin. It's okay to feel badly about sin. That's, that's a good thing. The problem is the fixation, the focus on it, and the believing that that's where life is found is just by seeing how bad it is. We, we do acknowledge sin, but then we lift up our heads because our focus doesn't need to be down here. Our focus is on Christ. He's the one who de- deliver, delivers us from sin. And so, what do we do? We delight in Him. We look at the scriptures cherishing Him. We wonder at Him. I don't know where to start, you say. We start with this passage when you're feeling defeated, you can go straight to verse 14 and say, the record of debt has been canceled against me. And if I believe that I can overcome, if if I believe that this sin is worse than what Christ can cover for, then I believe that I've outdone His grace. But He has already said the legal demands are gone. There's no more condemnation. He has nailed it to the cross is what we sing about. And it is well with my soul, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but in whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. This is the strategy getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ. Whatever you can do to focus on the victory of Christ, you can go to Romans chapter 8 and try to spend the whole week, your whole lifetime trying to comprehend Romans 8, which tells us that whatever gets thrown at us, whether it's distress or famine or spiritual weakness or the spiritual powers that are set against us, it doesn't matter. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, there is the opposite. There is victory. There is conquering. Through this, we are more than conquerors. Through Him who loved us, Jesus Christ. There is no atonement. There is no forgiveness. There is no atonement in your defeat. There is only atonement in Christ's victory. Put all your attention there. The world, the flesh. Finally, the devil. Look at me at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it. When I say the devil here, I'm talking about all of the spiritual powers of this world who have set themselves against God the devil being the chief enemy. The Bible is clear that there is a cosmic battle going on all the time. There is the realm of the seen and there is the realm of the unseen. In the unseen realm, there are spiritual battles and it's God versus his enemies. Is it close? It's not close at all. These forces are even though they're battling, are not equal and opposite. They are unequal and opposite. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that in another sense, the war is just over. The victory has already been secured through the cross. In the cross, three things happen. Right here in verse 15. Disarming, shaming, and triumphing. Disarming, The spiritual authorities or rulers of this world cannot do anything. They've been disarmed. They don't have their power. Their power is condemnation. Their power is to say, you can be like us and walk away from God, but if you are secure in Christ, there is no power there. They've been disarmed. Shaming. The word there is to make a public spectacle. This is what has happened In the cross, it looked like a victory, but it was the actual defeat of those who were set against Christ. They have now been shamed. They no longer have any authority or power. There's triumphing. The word here is from uh, the the Roman concept of the the Roman triumph. It was a parade where the general who won the battle would come into the city and receive the, the laud and praise of the people. The cross, in other words, stands as an eternal parade that a defeat of death and sin and the enemies of God. And all of this happened on the cross. It was the crushing blow. What Jesus says in John chapter 12, right before he goes to the cross, right when he's thinking about his crucifixion, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 12, 31. Jesus knew that what he was about to do would cast out the ruler of this world. We should expect nothing less. This is the culmination of the story that we've been promised. In Genesis chapter 3, where we're told that this will play out this way, Genesis three fifteen, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, he says to the snake, the serpent of old, which the Bible says is the devil. In the cross of Christ, Jesus stepped on the head of the serpent and crushed him. It's already done. What we've said is this, the cross is, gives us certainty that there has been and will be victory over every wrong thing. And you say, how is Satan's head crushed? I still feel like he's pretty active. I still feel like there's a lot of evil in this world. And what do you mean? Has been and will be. Is it has been or is it will be? The answer is both. It's already done, and yet it will be done. Here's how I was thinking about that this week. You know, when you watch, I don't know if you do watch, professional chess. I don't really, but I've seen some matches. There's that moment sometimes, maybe even early in the game, where one person recognizes the victory of the other. You ever seen this? There are a few moves in, and the person stands up and offers their hand. Congratulations, you won. The person who's been defeated does that. Why? Why do they do that? Because they've seen enough. They've seen the strategy of the other person. They've seen that they've already made the wrong move. And they know that this other person is smart enough to play out that strategy. And so they say, instead of, it's an honoring thing to stand up and say, I see, you've already defeated me. We don't have to play this out anymore. They don't even finish the game what we are living in right now is a chess match that is already finished. But it's still playing out. God on one side and all flesh, the world, the devil, every enemy set against him on the other. All who oppose him. But God has already done the final move. It's checkmate already. It's just a matter of of the moves that remain on the board. When he sent his son to die on the cross, when Jesus went willingly to die on the cross, he already secured the victory that is to come. Why does God let it play out? That's that's a question for the ages. That's what we've wrestled with. Why are you not quicker? Come quickly, Lord, finish out this game. That's a real question, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's true that God has both defeated and is waiting to fully defeat his enemies. The game continues to play out. Here's what I want us to see though. We need to leave with our heads held high. Yes, sin is hard. Yes, sorrow is there. We talk about these things. There are plenty of sermons we've done on the sorrow and and hardship, and we aren't trying to press those down and say, those don't matter. But what I'm saying today is this, there has to also be this sense of victory for the Christian. Not just individually, but together as the church, what Christ has done has secured us. We are the fans who are watching the game play out in victory, not defeat, not defeat. We have the privilege of watching the last seconds, however long those seconds are, whether it's years or millennia, I don't know. But this is the end. And victory is secure. We have the privilege. We can high-five one another, okay? We can dance a little bit because we're on the winning side. And it's not because of us. We didn't secure that for ourselves, but God in Christ defeats every wrong thing. So the wrong that's in us and the wrong that's in the world is done. In Christ, victory is ours. Let's pray. pray for the many of us, Lord, who are living defeated, which is a common, very real temptation for any of us to believe that it's basically over. And I pray that you would give us the ability to lift up our heads, that we would actually find delight in triumph. That Christ has already and will certainly in the future fully and finally defeat everything that stands against him. You are the victor, and you have brought us along in victory. Thank you that we have a part in this. Thank you that we have a part in you. As we come to your table this morning, fill us with yourself. I pray that what Colossians 2 says, that that you, or the fullness of God dwells bodily, would be our reality, too, as we take you into our flesh, our bodies, that we would find the fullness and sufficiency of Christ this morning above every other thing that would take us captive. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.